And I can tell you now, important countries, not only were supporting the attack on Tripoli, but were plotting exactly against the holding of that national conference. Didn't want it to happen. I'm very angry. I'm very angry because it means that the state of multilateralism and international cooperation has gone down big time. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. My guest today once lost his student's test results to a stray bullet. He survived one of the most tragic episodes in the UN's history in Iraq and left the peaceful orchards of Lebanon to take on the conflict in Libya at 65. Hassan Salameh, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Thank you. Good to have you with us. I'd like to take you back to 1975 to start with. Lebanon, your own country, was about to descend into a 15-year sectarian civil war. You were studying in Paris at the time. Many were fleeing Lebanon, but you decided to, to go back. Why? We knew that Beirut was not the safest place on earth, but it was our place. The city was divided into two. There was the eastern side, which was massively Christian and anti-Palestinian, and the western side, which was predominantly Muslim and pro-Palestinian. And uh, although we came from the Christian community, we decided to go and live in Western Beirut. But all the rest of the family was, of course, in East Beirut. So one of the biggest challenges were when our two daughters were born was to allow them to meet their grandparents on the Eastern side. And uh, when I started teaching also at St. Joseph University, which was on the Eastern side, it became also a challenge. So yes, I was shot at many times. I had a small Fiat car, and uh, it was full of small holes by snipers when I, would, I was trying to move from one side to the other. But the number of people who would cross east to west or west to east was dwindling by the day. After two or three years, we were in the dozens who were trying to do that. More importantly, psychologically, it became very, very difficult because for the Christians in the East, we were somehow traitors. I mean, what are we doing still in the predominantly Muslim part of the city? Why don't we join all the Christians who were in the East? And for the Muslims in Beirut, why don't we move uh, to the east? In fact, uh, some kind of slow motion ethnic cleansing took place. And with the passage of time, Beirut uh, became almost divided along with a few exceptions, and we were part of the exception. So you're trying to set a personal example, of course, but beyond that you are working with others to try to come up with the terms of an agreement which might settle this conflict somehow. And you have the outlines of that, shall we say, by 1983. Yes. And there's a solution of sorts, but not one which fundamentally resolves the, the war. Yes, this is a lesson that we should all keep in mind. That very often the ingredients of a solution to a conflict are there. 
the ingredients of a solution to go back to a peaceful situation were clear almost when the Palestinians had to leave after the big Israeli invasion of 1982. So by 83, things were clear, and uh, the country produced what was called then a constitutional document, which was the very first attempt to find a solution. But the lesson to be learned is that it is not only the ingredients of a solution that you need in order to go forward. It is the psychological readiness of the main players. If the main players believed that they can still win militarily, or if they believed that uh, the war is not over. In other words, if the situation psychologically is not ripe, even if you have the ingredients in your hands, you don't go very far. And it's a pity, and I kept repeating that to my Iraqi friends, to my Libyan friends, and to other people uh, with whom I had to deal after that, Look, we were ready on paper in 1983 for a solution, but we decided as Lebanese to fight for an extra six years, during which we lost more than 50,000 people killed and more than half a million Lebanese who left the country. So don't be as stupid as we were. Try, once the ingredients of a solution are more or less available, to speed up the process and to accept that you need to sort of make concessions and accept the compromise. So you leave your job as a Lebanese government minister and Kofi Annan asks you to be a political advisor to the Iraq assistance mission. And obviously the war and the UN's presence was deeply controversial. What made you accept that job? Well, I was not having this in mind. I was having in mind to go back to the university. I like the permanent movement. There is probably some Bedouin blood in my, in my, in my body uh, somewhere. I, I was coming back to Sciences Po, where I have been teaching before getting into the government. When I got this call saying the Secretary General wants to talk to you, I mean, he has seen that I knew the Iraqis that they called me by my first name and vice versa. He also knew that I was in good terms with the Iraqi opposition, who went back to sort of rule Iraq uh, after the invasion. Let me tell you very frankly, I was against the war. And since I could work with both the defeated regime and the new regime, I thought that I can play some kind of a bridge between the two and try to rebuild some kind of consensus. So in carrying out that task, you obviously had to be acutely sensitive to how ordinary Iraqis, Iraqi political leaders would perceive you and the UN. And as you did in Lebanon, you tried to live by example, connect with ordinary people. And the UN took the decision to set itself outside the green zone in order to be closer to Iraq and its people. Yes, that's true. Uh, it was not my decision, but I supported it. So uh, the decision was made uh, already in New York when the mission was being uh, built, that the mission will not go and live in the famous green zone 
which was overprotected by the Americans because uh, its political role would be, let's say, to be charitable, ambiguous. So you and your f- colleagues at the UN have approved this decision to settle outside the green zone. And then came the tragic events, which you alluded to of August 19th. 2003, when a huge bomb ripped through the Canal Hotel and killed dozens of people, including your friends and colleagues, UN Representative Sergio Vieira de Mello. It was a defining moment for the UN and, of course, for you personally, losing those you were close to. Tell us about that day. Well, that was a horrible day. It was horrible. My first reaction was that I thought it was a mortar. And when you have mortars, this is Beirut speaking, you go to the basement. But there was no basement. In fact, it was not a mortar. It was a, a car bomb, in fact, a lorry bomb. And the two or three hours that followed were horrible. I stayed in a Canal Hotel with two or three members of the UN security, and we started trying to recognize people killed and uh, injured and sometimes searching with my own hands in the rubble because uh, the building was uh, very poorly built. It exploded and half of it fell down easily into, into real rubble, I mean. And then all the water pipes also exploded. So it became a huge amount, uh, in fact, amount of mud. The, the bombing took place around 4.30 p.m., but we were still finding people alive around six or seven when the night fell. And then we, of course, discovered the body of uh, Sergio and uh, I had to recognize it formally. So we did all that. I think we did it properly. I think we did it with uh, determination, with, uh, but also with a huge amount of sadness because it was avoidable because we had paid a very big price for the fact that we wanted to be closer to the Iraqi, uh, which was somehow, I mean, ridiculous. I mean, you are coming closer to the real Iraq and the real Iraq is hitting you uh, back. I'm sure the wounds and the trauma from that experience can never fully heal and that that grief stays with you. Do you think it also changed your understanding of how mediators are perceived, despite your obvious efforts to assert your independence and neutrality? Definitely. We live in a world now where, especially with social media, but even without social media, because you didn't have social media in Iraq then, but uh, you met a lot of people who said it's all your fault. Sometimes because they mix things together. Sometimes because they believe that you are the Security Council, so any UN Security Council resolution, you wrote it. So you have to explain to them that the Secretariat is one thing. The Security Council is completely different thing. After that experience, you could have been forgiven if you had wished to retire, go back home to Lebanon, 
live a peaceful life, but you received another call from the UN, uh, this time in 2017, and you were asked to take on the position of UN representative to Libya. What made you accept this job after everything you had been through already? Well, my life has been quite busy. Uh, I wrote a number of books uh, after Iraq. I taught, I was asked to build a new school of international affairs. I loved the experience. But by the mid-teens, around 2014-2015, I was somehow uh, getting my worst enemy around. That is boredom. I thought that I will spend my more, more time in Lebanon and uh, write and uh, possibly go into agriculture, to be honest, because uh, I have inherited from my father uh, some orchards in Mount Lebanon that are in horrible shape uh, because I never took interest in them. And I accepted because I thought that something can be done in Libya. And I didn't think that I would stay that long. I was thinking of a mission of 12 to 18 months, during which we can do something. And the idea I had was that what was missing was the Libyan voice. So we need to have this voice heard. And for that, you need this voice to exist. In fact, I took a number of decisions. One of them, was to move to Tripoli. The mission had been in Tunis for four years, and I felt that the credibility of the mission, the political credibility of the mission, had been strongly weakened by the fact that it was made of people living in comfort and happily. Away from the conflict itself. Away from the conflict itself. So I thought that if we want to help, we need to live the way the Libyans lived. But I didn't know how bureaucratic the United Nations had become. And I really am angry even now that between the day when I decided to go back to Tripoli and the day we did it, in practice it took like 15 months. I, I started going to, to every single place where security was not too opposed to me going because it was basically opposed to go anywhere, but sometimes it was a very clear veto and sometimes it was not. And you were there to listen? But I pushed for it and we went there and I think the Libyans appreciated the fact that I was coming to see them, to listen to them, to stay with them, to see their problems. What history will say when history is going to be written properly about this country is that the mission has been able to solve a large number of local problems because we were able to go local. More importantly, I decided that these Libyans need to somehow not only have their voice heard, but somehow formulate it. And that's where we struck a deal with humanitarian dialogue. I was very grateful to HD for its support in order to consult the Libyans on what they want. And 77 meetings took place all over the country. You had people living in the same city coming together to that meeting for the first time in many years. It was a big thing. And then 
we encapsulated all this in a number of resolutions. We wanted to go from this large consultation into a specific consultation with representatives of the whole of the country, like 160 of them, meeting in one place for many days in order to produce a roadmap. And we decided that this meeting would take place in Radamis, which is a beautiful city to the western part of the country, on the 14th of March, 2019. And I invited the Secretary General to come and encourage the Libyans to be participate in it, which he did. But Mr. Haftar decided to start his big attack against Tripoli on the 4th of April and basically rendered this conference impossible. And then there was the decision, do you still go and meet with Haftar after what he did? He basically spat in your face. So why do you need to go and see him? But both the Secretary General and myself thought that it all depends on what you are going to tell him. However, he, during the conversation, uh, you could see clearly that he was confident that a number of big powers were supporting his attack. And he mentioned some of them by name. Even mentioned, he quoted from conversation he had with their leaders. And uh, that's where you felt, as UN, that the hypocrisy of countries at this stage has reached limits that make your work very, very problematic. When you learned of that, when you heard it straight from General Haftar's mouth, what did you feel? That I am becoming irrelevant because <laughs> the irony of the situation is the following. You are at the same time being stabbed in the back by most of the Security Council, not only the US, most of the Security Council members. Because the day he attacked Tripoli, Haftar had most of them supporting him. While you are being criticized by the Libyans for not stopping him. I mean, uh, that's where the distinction between the Security Council and your mission becomes crucial. So we were in a very problematic situation where basically Haftar's attack has stopped our peace process for which we have been working for a year entirely. All these resolution of local disputes, etc., were meant to be preparatory work for that national conference. And every time I went to the Security Council, at least once every two months, often more, I had this beautiful, like you are doing a wonderful job, go ahead, etc., etc. And I can tell you now, important countries, not only were supporting the attack on Tripoli, but were plotting exactly against the holding of the national conference. Didn't want it to happen. What would you say to those countries now? I'm very angry. I'm very angry because it means that the state of multilateralism and international cooperation has gone down big time. It's now an international system that is not only deregulated when it comes to the use of force, which is horrible in itself, deregulated when it comes to foreign interference, direct military interference in the 
local conflicts of this world, as Libya has witnessed in the past five or six years, but where important leaders or leaders of important countries do not feel any scruple, do not feel any personal limitation to state what they know exactly as fake news or as something that is different from their real behavior. It is something that we need to live with for a while, apparently. And it is something that makes the lives of representatives on the ground horrible because you still need to defend an institution. You are the representative of an institution that is at the same time a theater of the absurd. But then, by the beginning of the summer of 2019, I came to the conclusion that my attempt to operate locally to something that was to a large extent foreign-backed was becoming irrelevant. So I, I came to a new strategy, which I exposed before the Security Council, and of course the Security Council applauded to it before destroying it that I need to build some kind of an international understanding on Libya. And uh, I met Madame Merkel on the 15th of August 2019, and she was convinced. Berlin took place on 19th of January. On the 20th of January, I had on my desk two photographs of one airplane and one ship bringing new weapons to Libya, different countries, to the two sides. One week later, it was even worse. The Syrian mercenaries started pouring in, first in the west and later in the east as well. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes when you've got this major agreement in Berlin that's been ratified at the Security Council, where countries commit not to sending weapons in, you see clear evidence that they are, and you confront them privately about this. Not only this. privately. I told the Security Council, many of you are lying to me, I said. In these words, they said in Berlin, they committed in Berlin, but I know what they are doing. They are sending ships, they are sending planes, they are sending, they are interfering, they are sending mercenaries. But I thought that by launching the three tracks among the Libyans, I will shame these countries out of pursuing their activity. From everything I've heard about you, Hassan, I know how tirelessly you worked in Libya, trying to find the glue to bind together this fractious society. But it came at a personal cost to your health as well. True, true. I had a, a burnout already in spring 2018 that compelled me to stop working for three weeks. And uh, I was having a heart and a burnout problem immediately after Berlin. It's not a job like any other. Oh. It is not. But the bureaucratization of the UN is, is a real threat. And sometimes you ask yourself, 
can you help peace more outside the UN than inside the UN? Which is a horrible question. It should, you shouldn't ask yourself this question. If you are a peacemaker, you should think of the UN. But nowadays, sometimes the bureaucracy is such, the divisions in the Security Council are such, that you start thinking, is it the right vehicle for somebody who wants peace, who doesn't want a job, but wants to contribute to peacemaking in the world? It's, it's an open question for me, to be honest. And in terms of the personal toll, which we've talked about today, Hassan, how has your family felt about your career and the decisions that you've taken in the pursuit of peace? They don't want to see more of it. They used my grandson against me, which I will never forgive them for. Uh, the, the grandson, my two grandsons, went into the opposition to my presence in Libya. <laughs> and they had more effect than their mothers or grandmothers. They forgive me for the past, but they don't want more of it in the future. I'm not sure I'll abide by their wish, but I will try. Hassan, thank you for being my guest today. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. That was Hassan Salameh in the Mediator Studio, an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. If you've enjoyed your time in the Mediator Studio, recommend it to a friend and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can continue the conversation with me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. And if you want to listen to other episodes in the series, go to osloforum.org. That's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening. <laughs>